This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Hi and welcome to Radiotherapy 2017. And we are just bursting with great stories from the world of medicine, psychiatry and haute couture. Joining us this morning is Dr. Perry Natal, who, when she isn't cuddling babies, likes to watch horror movies. Or does she? Last week, Dr. Perry spent an unhappy two hours in front of a screen watching the film Split by the director who made the fantastic The Sixth Sense. Now, what got under her skin? Where did it go so wrong for her? Dr. Penny will be teasing out the psychological issues of the split. And if you've been reading our Facebook page, she'll also be commenting on the Australian Open too. Mm, interested in that. Um, continuing on with the split theme, as in split peas, Dr. Junior will be telling us the latest information about the Mediterranean diet. Now, you've been hearing it for years. Those meals rich in legumes, unrefined cereals, fruits and veggies are good for your heart. No surprises there. But did you know about the latest research showing that the med diet may also be good for your mood? No wonder those southern Italians look so happy. Junior will be chatting with us about how what's on your plate can affect your mental state. Did you also know that soon pharmacists will be able to perform? One performs an immunisation. No, I'm getting head shaking, but I, I, I didn't know that until Nurse EpiPen told me. Is it a good thing, a bad thing, or just a thing? As Gertrude Stein used to say, the panel will be discussing the pros and cons of this new initiative. All this and so, so much more this morning on Radiotherapy, the radio show listened to by more of my relatives than any other station. Good morning, EpiPen. Good morning. Am I on? Am I on? Am you're I on, on? You're yes. on, baby. It's, it's only been about two months since we've done the show, but you're back on. Nice. Hello. Welcome, listeners. And we've got to say thank you so much to uh, everybody that filled in for us over the summer break. I've just been talking with some of the uh, guys out in the green room about Fully Sick and uh, what a great show it was and Jenny, the host, and um, really interesting segments. And uh, we could learn a lot from listening to uh, to uh, the summer break and, and shows that are filling in for us. Um, and as uh, Penny said, um, a lot more talent than us. That's a bit cruel. No, well, well, so, well no, they, it was just different. It was different, different. Yeah, but you said they're and better. Much, yeah. <laughs> but you said they're better. No, they're a bit lighter. I think we cover some really, really We're serious, serious, and yeah. interesting topics. Doctor Perry, how are you? Good morning. Well, thank you. Um, you and I both uh, bonded about the Australian Open, and I'm so desperate to hear about your sort of psychological take on what gets us so invested in a tennis match when ordinarily, you know, I couldn't give two hoots. But that's going to come up in one second. We're just going to say good day to Junior. Good morning. Uh, now, Junior, we know you're the most uh, or the youngest of the team because you brought in your laptop, you're Googling whilst we're all talking, you're probably on WhatsApp, Instagram. What, what are you doing there, mate? I can guarantee I'm not chasing Pokemons. Well, I've caught all the Pokemons in the studio already. Oh, I don't know about that. That's the weird thing, too. Hey, do you, got, you guys give lectures, yeah, or tutes. Do you have yes. students typing away and you're just wondering what's on, going on behind their screens? Does that ever happen to you? I know what's going on behind their screens. I don't want to know anymore. I'm just happy that they're actually physically there. Do you know what I do during my tutes? I in lectures, I walk up and down and through the rows and see what they're actually typing, and I can see a whole lot of screens quickly change as I approach. And that's the beauty of having a microphone. You can just walk around and, oh, okay, you're texting your mum. Okay, got it. 
If anything, I'm more reassured when the students are typing, when they're just looking at their screens somewhat blankly or intently. Watching Netflix or That's when it becomes a bit concerning. But then, you know, in a lecture scenario, you say, okay, this is a very important slide. This is going to be examinable. And people start frantically typing. That's actually reassuring for me. Because what happens is, I reckon a couple, a couple of them are sort of, they've got the earplugs in watching Netflix. Yeah, but when you say the magic words, exam, all of a sudden, bing, 100% focused attention. I use that trick all the time. Like I say, this is examinable for pretty much everything I say, because it potentially is. Tell us about the Australian Open. Why am I so fascinated by it? Well, Harry? you and me both. So, um, oh, and me, and me. Oh, and pen, I went. Most people in Melbourne, really, uh, if they didn't actually turn up um, physically <clears throat> at the Australian Open, they were certainly watching it all night and most of the day in lunchrooms all over Melbourne. Why? Why do we care? So I actually think, I mean, I I know that I'll get in trouble from sports fans when I say this, but I think that tennis is the, it's the, it's the sport where the psychological battle that people have with themselves becomes so evident and that's what people are fascinated by. It's really not so much about the opponent. It's someone double faulting twice and then a let and, you know, that's that sort of stuff. Uh, I think... Um, it's where people are able to either overcome their own internal demons or they can't. And that's what I watch for. And because the personalities of the people who play that kind of elite sport are really exposed um, when they're really fighting and all of their coping strategies as well. So you really see how different people react under stress and pressure. And, you know, you see that, I think, in its purest form in one of those sort of elite sporting competition so that that for me is the reason why i'm you know obsessively watching the tennis around about this time so it's about the vulnerability of the players and and their kind of personalities laid bare i think so it's what they reach for when they're really at the most extreme end of physical exhaustion or or you know really struggling to to perform at that extreme level because you know they're all top sports people they all can serve beautifully they would Mm. all destroy any of us in Mm. any kind of friendly match and then you know suddenly sometimes they just crumble and and you can see them the mounting frustration in them I, i also think that because we're all so fascinated by it we do tend to kind of build these personalities up into um, figures that they aren't mm-hmm. and I was particularly concerned by the kind of focus on poor Nick Kyrgios, mm. who really um, is a 21 year old and if you remember <laughs> what any of us was mm. like at the age of 21 even without all of the pressure that he's under to perform and to on and off the court it seems almost like bullying the kind of focus and the, and the gratuitous advice mm. that was provided mm. to him about how he should be as a person mm. no one in any other forum has that kind of pressure and i think i think we need to be really really conscious of the effect on any individual of that kind of public attention and pressure mm. that's my thought about that particular situation you know what gets me is that in my household, we're not big tennis watchers, but uh, even the no- most non-sporting person in my household was up till 11 o'clock at night cheering on. And I, I just couldn't believe it. It's like people's personalities change when they start watching the tennis. It is, <laughs> it is, it is really quite incredible. Don't you watch the footy? Goodness yeah, me. Yeah, I watch the footy or, you know, go. But, t- t- but the tennis is something different because it's not something that I would normally be interested in. But it was, <clears> the th- I think it was the theatre and the drama and the stakes. And it was kind of, uh, as you say, uh, psychology writ large, everything was up for grabs. And th- I think there was a lot of identification too. you know, people saying, well, what would be, I mean, unconsciously, obviously, like me, like, what would, if that was me, what would I do? 
and I, you know, and then consciously I think, what would I do if I had a tennis ball coming up at two hundred kilometers an hour? You know, I'd be freaking out. <laughs> I would cower. I, I would run. <laughs> Step aside. So interestingly, I watched the women's uh, football match, the first oh, yeah. Collingwood yeah. Carlton, which was sensational. Yeah. And get out of town! <laughs> they, had, they had they had more than a thousand people that they had to lock out because they couldn't fit in the stadium. Very good. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and it they're going to have to move so, as well. Aren't yeah, they? yeah, yeah. So it was sensational. But um, I was sitting with my neighbour, and she was saying, "Look." I prefer tennis. And I go, why do you prefer tennis? And she said, I understand the rules. <laughs> <laughs> it's a simple, it's a simpler game. But I think also watching Nadal and not crossing on the lines and mm. lining up his mm. juice bottles and what it does, what that person has to do to keep their focus and on track and, you know, everybody's different. And, you know... It, and the com- their comeback stories as well, yeah. you know, off with injuries and now yeah. they're fighting it and they're both old, like 35, I mean, really. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah, I, I, it's the whole theatre for me. And I, I hadn't thought of what you were saying, Perry, that it, it actually is uh, the vulnerability of the player which actually gets you in because you're right, everything's laid bare there. You can't hide anything, can you? And, the, you know, HDTV, you know, you can see every wrinkle, every furrowed brow. Drip of sweat. Yeah. Quite amazing. Yeah. And there's, you know, an emerging field of sports psychology now um, and sports psychiatry. Sports psychiatry, yeah. yeah where um, people are, yeah. you know, attempting to sort of learn and, and marshal those resources that they have when they need them at times of extreme pressure. So I really think that's going to be a, um, an expanding field in the future, just like people have sports physiologists and sports physiotherapists and, and dietitians, they will now have, you know... Sports psychiatrists? Yeah, I think so. So how do I put my hand up for that job? What do I... <laughs> Uh, wouldn't it be a great job? But there would be a lot of pressure associated with it. Like, you know, it's not just your routine, you know, how you're feeling today. It's, you know, how do you feel when there are hundreds of thousands of people watching you and you double fault? You know, I was, I was watching the tennis with my wife, who's a physio, and I'm a shrink. And we both kind of see it from, like, she goes, oh, that medial collateral ligament, it's getting stressed. I'm thinking, well, I'm just thinking about how stressed the poor guy is. You know, and we're both seeing it through our own frame. And I think... That's what great sport or great achievement does. You kind of it transcends the sport or the music or whatever. It just <clears throat> excuse me, just it touches something in you that is very personal. I think, and that's a, that, that's what did it for me with the tennis. Having said that, I probably won't watch tennis for another year. Yeah. <laughs> Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone. Indeed. Now, uh, if you're uh, one of the several uh, million readers of our Facebook page, um, it did say that Dr. Perinator will be analysing the tennis. And we did sort of touch on the tennis, but then this morning she came running into Triple R Studio saying, Mal, I've got to talk about this. This is just, I'm so passionate about it. So the split. (laughs) Yeah. The split. So I thought this was, I thought I had a bit more authority to talk about this too, rather than just pining <laughs> over the tennis. But um, you're not going to give too much away. Well, I might give quite a lot away, actually. Oh, so spoiler oh, alert. If you yeah, want to yeah. split. I hate, I'm, I'm sticking my fingers in my ears. <clears throat> okay, well, I guess we won't have a contribution from EpiVent for the next 10 minutes. <laughs> if you want to go see the movie, turn off for the next 10 minutes, but turn back on after that. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So, so um, <clears throat> part of this is something that we've talked about previously because we had an AGM recently in the pub. And when I put my hand up and asked if I could talk about movies, everyone seemed to think it was a great idea, mm. maybe because we were in the pub. <laughs> but um, I decided to run with it and chose my first movie of the year, and I saw it yesterday, and it is the movie Split by M. Night Shyamalan, um, who's made other such fabulous movies, as <clears> you <throat> mentioned, like The Sixth Sense and some other terrible movies that I won't even mention. Um, 
And it was released about a week or two ago, and it's done really well at the box office, in fact. Oh, okay. Yeah, and uh, it's also done really well on um, internet movie reviews like Rotten Tomatoes. Oh. So, I went to see it. But not in your household, is what you're about to tell us. <laughs> did, did you go on your own? I did go on my oh, own. Oh, oh God. Yeah. And, and it was an empty theatre. I don't know why it was an empty theatre. Because <laughs> everyone ran. <laughs> so, I'll tell you a little bit about about the premise of the movie so that you'll okay. understand why I feel like I would like to comment on it further. So sure. essentially <clears throat> it's a story about dissociative identity disorder and its treatment and the possible consequences if it's not well treated. So, Otherwise known as, previously known as? Multiple personality disorder. Yeah. Cool. So that's supposedly what the movie is about. Yep. <clears throat> However, because I haven't seen any of the really terrible movies that this director has made since The Fabulous Sixth Sense, I really wasn't prepared for how ridiculous and silly this movie was. I couldn't take it seriously, and that meant that using it to discuss DID is about as appropriate as using a beautiful mind to discuss schizophrenia or Homeland to discuss bipolar disorder. Neither of those, <laughs> neither of those shows. Just ruined Homeland for me now. <laughs> neither of the protagonists in those particular shows are anything like the people that I have met who suffer from those illnesses. And similarly, in this movie, Kevin and his twenty-four alter egos is nothing like any of the very few patients that I have seen with DID. Mm-hmm. So can, I, can I just ask a question? Mm-hmm. So how many would you normally... How many personalities would a DID person usually have? There's there's no average. Because there's such a... I, I guess because it's such an unusual condition, I don't think there's really any way you can systematically study. But... Um, uh, I've heard of people having sort of between 8 and 16 personalities. Personally, I think you'd start to lose track if you had more than about 24. But oh, I thought you were going to have your fingers in your ears, Penny. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I'm just waiting. <laughs> no, no punchlines have been given yet. But the biggest question has always been with um, DID, are we actually talking about distinct um, personality sets that people change from or are we really just talking about people having um, mood swings and subsequently not necessarily recalling or taking ownership of you know how their behaviors have been and how their you know mood states have been yeah so this is a controversy actually uh, because um, that goes to an idea about how we categorize this disorder uh, at the moment in dsm5 it's categorized as a dissociative disorder and that suggests that term um, means <clears throat> Uh, that people will lose contact with reality for a certain period of time and they'll have altered perceptual states. And this is a phenomenon that a lot of people experience when they're under extreme stress. So uh, if you're about to have an operation and suddenly you see yourself from across the room or um, if you've heard some terrible news and, you know, you lose track of time for a few hours. Um, I remember something similar after my Year 12 maths exam, actually. But... um, But that's sort of to trivialise the condition that seems to result in people being quite fractured to the point where they don't have any memory of what they've done when they're in a in a different state of mind and that extreme and at the very extreme end of that experience is that they feel like it's a different person who's actually done that so you know I, i talk about it like the science is settled the science is certainly not settled and um, even the phenomenon as as an entity is something that's the subject of quite hotly contested debate amongst psychiatrists and psychologists over the world. Um, so I might talk briefly about the movie and then maybe I'll talk a bit about the phenomenon itself and, and how it's been treated in the media. So I would say um, that in fact because it is such a silly film I can't really talk about Uh, DID in that context. The film itself, I think, makes me think more about feminism 
Um, and, and not just because feminism is kind of in the news with the Women's March on Washington uh, in their pussy hats. Feminism and another idea, this idea that exists in society nowadays in which everyone who's a bit different, <coughs> an outcast or socially awkward, is not in some way deficient. They're actually... They've actually got superpowers that the rest of us don't. So it's the same premise as all of the X-Men films and it's also an idea that's taken hold in some quarters in regard to autism, that neurotypicals, as the rest of us are called, don't have access to a true understanding of reality that these other people do with their different way of perceiving the world. And if I think about the history of this idea, I feel like I've seen it before, um, maybe in the 80s with The Breakfast Club and um, maybe in the 90s with that great movie Pump Up the Volume or even more recently Romy and Michelle's High School Reunion in which all of the really cool kids were the ones who were the vulnerable shunned nerds in high school. But in the 80s, these guys might have invented something and become absurdly rich. Nowadays, it's morphed into something else altogether. The idea that these people are actually superior, they're more evolved, they're more powerful than anyone else and they can use their power for good like in the X-Men or for evil like in Split. So... I'll talk firstly about the idea of feminism and then I might talk about this other idea that it made me think about. Um, Nick Dent uh, wrote a review of this movie in the Daily Telegraph and I think he got it right. He said, Split seems at first like a venture into torture porn um, because at the very outset three girls are abducted from the local mall and they're held in an underground bunker where they're terrified and gradually stripped to their underwear by a very creepy James McAvoy with OCD. So Just remind us who James... Is he the guy that was the captain in um, Star Wars? Uh, uh, St- Star Trek? James McAvoy? No. No, so who's James McAvoy? So he's a young British actor who does a very good American accent. Um, and he's been in... Um, he's well, been co- coincidentally, he played in X-Men. Um, he played yeah, um, Professor right. X. Yes. I think that and that's the, probably his breakout role, I would say. Right. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So it's funny to, to, I suppose it's interesting to hear the correlation now between um, Split and mm. X-Men and, mm. you know, um, accessing sort of um, distinct neural pathways. Yeah, yeah. So aside from him, um, there's not that many other characters in the film. Um, aside from him and the girls. So two of them are just preppy teen slasher victims. And the only other protagonist is his therapist, who just coincidentally reminded me so strongly of my wonderful and wise psychotherapy supervisor that I got really upset when she got herself in trouble. Um, And, you know, I I suppose to comment on this particular part of the movie, I know it's a time-honoured theme, vulnerable women being caged up and serially murdered. I just really don't enjoy watching it. So that was one of the reasons why I found Mm -hmm. it um, a bit sick-making watching Mm -hmm. this movie in particular. But then um, after a fairly messy moment in which one of the girls is made to dance for McAvoy, the film moves on to one of its other major preoccupations, this idea that normal people are the dysfunctional ones. So when you normal people as in, uh, how do you define normal? Well, in this movie, normal is the girls who have a party in the mall Mm. and the outcast, the girl who kind of stands in the corner and doesn't make eye contact and gets in trouble at school. She's the abnormal one. Right. Okay. Mm. But I think that the film actually takes this a step further, that the idea that anyone who hasn't experienced abuse... Who has or hasn't? Who hasn't experienced experienced abuse, isn't primed to survive in an extreme circumstance and almost isn't worthy of survival. So the people who've never suffered are called in this movie um, pure and should therefore, for example, have their small intestines ripped out via their rib cages, for example, just to take a random example, (laughs) (laughs) in this movie... Ears in, uh, ears in, <laughs> yeah. fingers in, fingers in. In this, in this movie, 
It's not Casey's ingenuity or her bravery that saves her. It's the fact that she's literally scarred by her childhood experiences and therefore she's suffered and mm. therefore she's spared. So I find that pretty problematic, actually. But So, so the, just, just to... I'm, I'm just getting back into the, the chair of radiotherapy and so sort of intellectual discussion. It takes yeah, yeah. a while to, to filter through to my cortex. So what the film is saying is that uh, unless you have suffered trauma, you are unable to negotiate uh, challenges in your life or extreme challenges. Yeah, that's yeah? right. And also that you're not worthy, that and you shouldn't survive. You shouldn't survive. Okay, yeah, yeah. even further. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that's pretty interesting um, and, and a bit problematic. And maybe the director will explore this idea in the sequel because it was very obviously set up to mm. have a sequel. Yeah, so as I said, the film is pretty silly and its facile exploration of DID is pretty silly too, which I think is a bit of a shame. I think mm. the idea that we are all made up of many selves is a useful and an interesting way to explore the concept of identity mm. and the idea that under pressure our sense of who we are can become so fractured that our many selves split into distinct personalities is really interesting. So it's not one that has a lot of currency in the mainstream of psychiatric Mm. practice in Australia. Though, as I mentioned, I've seen a couple of patients Mm. with this disorder myself and there are therapists who Mm. specialise in treating the condition, even in Melbourne. But coming back to the movie again, it's definitely scary and it made me feel sick, which I think every good horror movie should. And I like that Shyamalan has seen just as many Hitchcock movies just as many times as I have. So I would say go and see it, but don't expect to learn anything about mental illness. Mm. And I thought that would be the end of my discussion about this movie until I got up this morning and got on the internet. And overnight, an open letter to the director was written by a survivor of trauma and published in The Hollywood Reporter, in which she rebuked him for the use of misleading stereotypes of people with mental illness Mm. in the service of a good story, which Mm. I think is the broader concern that we all have with this particular movie so the writer was a lady called michelle stevens um and is a sufferer of did and also talked about other films which i'd forgotten um used multiple personality disorder as a as a vehicle in the plot like fight club for example and said pretty powerfully i think with the release of your highly objectionable movie you have become my bully mr Shyamalan. i am personally harmed by the grotesque stereotypes you perpetuate in split your derivative depiction of Kevin Crumb as one more gender-confused cross-dressing multiple with a penchant for violence has the same effect as shouting across the playground, people with DID are dangerous nutjobs. So then there was another article in Yahoo Movies, um, again overnight, quoting, among others, a woman, an Australian woman called Cathy Kesselman, who is a survivor of childhood trauma and actually received an Order of Australia for her services Mm. in that field, who said on SBS... Research shows that people with this diagnosis are no more likely to be violent offenders than the rest of the population. So for people to experience it and see a movie about their diagnosis is very traumatising. And they also quoted a guy, Charles Bromesco, who wrote The Verge, who said, it's hard to imagine a more squarely on-the-nose example of demonising mental illness and portraying Mm. a mentally ill man as a literal demon. Mm. So that made me think this morning that discussing... DID in a bit more detail might be useful to maybe counter some of these stereotypes that exist out there. And uh, the more I read about the discussions around it, the more I think that this is another mental illness whose presence in the popular imagination diverges so far from the way that we psychiatrists would understand it as to be basically describing different conditions. Mm. So I'm going to start off talking about it. So just when you say something like that, the difference between what clinicians understand by a diagnosis and what is out 
there in lay people's understanding. Yeah. Because it is so nuanced and so complex and there are controversies. There is a gulf. Yes. I mean, when I think of this, the the common example I use with people is, you know, when someone says, I've got a bit of the flu. I mean, you can't have a bit of the flu. You either got the flu or you don't. It's like being pregnant or depression. I've got a bit of depression. Yeah, that's the one that really annoys me. I'm a bit depressed today. No, you're not. You're a bit sad. (laughs) So there's sadness and there are different things. But because, you know, it's not the currency of what people talk about every day and Mm. it is with ours, um, there's a misunderstanding out there. And I guess especially so with DID because of, uh, I guess, the way it is often... Uh, exploited or used in in, in movies. Um, you yeah. Know, I, Another one that I think about is um, schizophrenia yeah. to mean that you're in two minds about something. Yep, yep, that really yep, annoys me. Yep. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so the idea that um, Dr. Junior, Junior Doctor, mentioned before that um, people who experience extreme trauma will use these primitive defences to avoid remembering the trauma to the extent of dissociating. So when... Um, when you say defences, we're talking psychological, I guess, unconscious mechanisms, yeah? Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's right. Yeah. So if something is so overpowering, overpoweringly terrible that you can't even bring yourself to re-experience it as a memory, you will seal it off in, in your mind and silo your experiences and be selective about what you experience. I think... And I know I'm jumping on what you want to say, and I apologise, but I'm just so <laughs> interested in what you have to say. The kind of example I used to use a lot, still do, is uh, if a computer, like say my computer, is it's got so much happening, it freezes, and just no information goes in and no information comes out. And when I think you know, when you're overwhelmed with so much uh, information or, or emotional overload, you freeze. Your brain just the spinning wheel just goes on in your brain. You know. Yeah, yeah. I think that's actually a really good illustration of the experience and. Uh, you know, after the First World War, when they didn't really know about the idea of post-traumatic stress, there were a lot of people who were called shell shock victims mm-hmm. who would, you know, uh, wander away from the town in which they'd mm-hmm. always lived and then start up a life in another town. And we would call those states fugue states mm-hmm. um, and, and a similar sort of phenomenon. They would have no memory of their life prior to the war and loved ones that they met might appear like strangers to them. So it's something that I think understandably kind of captures your imagination mm. uh and because at its very at its most uh, i guess um mild uh form it's something that we might all experience mm. i suppose we also have a sense of empathy and understanding mm. of what the internal experience of mm. that might be like so if we think back um, over where it emerged and how it emerged in popular culture, you've got to think about uh, stories like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Where, Two personalities. Yeah, 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 that's right. Yeah, and that was a long time ago now. That was written, mm. you know, around the turn of the century, the 19th century, I think. Um, and then more recently, I suppose, there was Psycho with Norman mm. Bates as this kind of mummy's boy who mm. ultimately tried to, you know, slash women up in the shower. That's not a spoiler. Should I give you a spoiler alert for that, Penny? <laughs> no, that's okay. <laughs> that's a classic. Okay, that's all right. But there have been other <clears throat> movies that talk about this. So, like, The Three Faces of Eve, yeah. or most famously, I think, Sybil. Sybil and we yeah. talked about Sybil, oh. actually, in the coffee shop earlier. Yeah, yeah uh, it was one of the motivating... It was, was, well, got me interested in psychiatry. It yeah. was given to me in Form 4 by um, Dr. Noelot. Dr. Doolittle, sorry, Dr. Doolittle, one of the hosts of uh, radiotherapy. We were mates in high school, and he said, "Check out this book." Yeah, yeah, and I think it is a mate. It really gripped you and a lot of other mm. people around the world. It's the story of a woman who uh, was went to see her therapist and suddenly appeared as another person, mm. and gradually the therapist explored her other alter egos more completely, and. Um, under the influence of hypnosis and sodium pentothal, which is like the truth drug. Mm. 
she managed to describe quite distinct personalities. And this was something that really, I think, um, is a bit problematic in, in terms of the history of it. Uh, certainly her therapist was very supportive of her, but there's a question as to how much her condition really propelled this therapist's career um, and and made a lot of money for everybody Great involved. Great movie. Joanna Woodward and Sally Field. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. fabulous movie. Yeah. So, anyway, that's what that's that's the background to it. And, and I suppose the other aspect of all of this is that DSM was a bit slow to. And just just to cut in there, DSM is the kind of the the guidebook. Some call it a rule book. It's not really a rule book of psychiatric diagnosis. It says what you need to have to have a certain diagnosis, according to the American Psychiatric Association. Yeah, that's right. And and like any. Like anything that's compiled by a committee, it, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> it has its, its positives and its negatives. And one of the, the challenging aspects of the DSM mm. is it does tend to kind of um, bend to some of the winds in psychiatry mm. and psychology. So uh, around about the time that Sybil was coming out in 1976, uh, it, um, DSM-3 was being formulated and in the end uh, multiple personality disorder did arrive as a diagnostic category in the DSM-3 and it remained in the DSM-4 in various different revised versions and it's still there in DSM-5 today. So... But it's called dissociative identity disorder. Yes, it yep. is. Yes, it is. Yep. What, what number are we up to on the DSSM? We're up to five. Five. So five. far, we're on five. So the equivalent to that is the ICD code, which yes. is for other physio- physical. Well, actually, ICD also has psychiatric conditions in it, but it's more used. I think the distinction is probably the DSM is compiled by the American Psychiatric Association, and the ICD. Um, codes are compiled in Europe and used primarily in Europe and also in Australia. It's like VHS and Betamax. There's a, a, yeah. <laughs> a competition yeah. between yeah. the We're two of these the codebooks. <laughs> and uh, I'm just aware that we um, have gone uh, over time. Because it, no, 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 because it's such an interesting segment and it's something that I'd, I'd want you to come back to. If you had kind of one or two nuggets of information that you really want to put out there about DID or about the film, what would they be? Uh, I suppose I would say... <clears throat> Um, to suggest that someone who suffers from such an extreme breakdown of their sense of self mm. is is just like a sociopath is really unfair. Mm. So, the, and I would also reiterate what other people have said publicly, which is there's no evidence that people who suffer from this disorder are more mm. violent or mm. more dangerous yeah. than anybody else. Um, and I would also say that uh, we need to treat people suffering with mental illness in our community with a lot more empathy than using them as kind of plot vehicles in in movies. Enough of the plot vehicles with mental illness. Yeah, yeah. let's move on I to something more sophisticated, yeah. shall we? Mm-hmm. Yeah, great. <laughs> <laughs> I could oh, I could spend hours talking about that. Thank you so much, Perry Natal. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 RRR in Melbourne, Australia. You are listening to 3 RRR. Man, have we had a lot of discussion about that particular event in the studio. Absolutely fascinating. Junior, take me back. Make me happy. Feed me some legumes and pasta and olive yes, oil. let's talk about food. Yeah, let's talk about food. Food always makes people happy. So five days ago, it was on the news. It was um, quite big news, actually. Um, five days ago, um, a um, study uh, was published in um, BMC Medicine. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, what does BMC stand for? It's the name of the publishing company. Um, and it's an open access um, oh, like journal. Plus, like. um, plus, yeah. yeah. You can, you can yeah. download the articles you yeah. have to pay, which is yeah, good. without having to pay. Um, and it was published in this um, um, journal by a, a team based in uh, Deakin in Geelong. I'm yeah. um, looking at uh, the Mediterranean diet and its effect in major depressive disorder. 
Um, now, um, it sounded so good to be, almost too good to be true. I had to look up the study myself and had a good read through. And it is actually a very well conducted and very mm. compelling study. I've read some of these these authors' stuff before. They are tight. Sorry, they are good. Oh. We've got somebody's mobile phone going off. Uh, that wasn't me this time. <laughs> so if it was you... I cop a lot of flack for technology <laughs> because of my um, tender age, but that was not tender me. Age. No, but, uh, you know, uh, their, st- their stuff is, is high quality. So um, I was very interested to hear about this study. Absolutely. And, and look, by way of background, um, this has been looked into several times by, you know, multiple teams across multiple countries. And um, there have been um, observational as well as um, scientific um, data to date um, suggesting that a Mediterranean diet, which I'll go into a little mm-hmm. bit later, um, and ba- basically what some studies have called healthful eating um, do improve um, one's physical well-being as well as um, psychological um, well-being. So, you know, um, there have been studies looking at sort of uh, higher intake um, of foods with saturated fat and mm-hmm. refined carbohydrates, processed food mm-hmm. products to be um, associated with poor mental health in children and adolescents. Um, there have even been studies looking at um, um, cohorts of pregnant women and their diet and um, the incidence of uh, behavioural um, difficulties and diff- difficulty settling in mm-hmm. their babies in the immediate sort of postnatal um, phase. So, you know, I think the, the background is set um, for there to be more study into this area. And I think this is where um, this team and um, their publication sort of um, fitted really quite well in to um, the, the sort of... Um, the, the evidence landscape. So what they did was um, they uh, recruited about 67 uh, people with um, um, major depressive disorder and the um, selection criteria were by, was by means of um, a series of surveys and assessments and they have to you know, um, fill a certain score in a commonly used um, depression rating scale. HamD? It's the Madras, actually. Because right. the HamD would have been good for a study about food. Yes, <laughs> Yes, that's very it's true. Ironic, just <laughs> I think Hamdi was also one of their secondary outcomes, okay. but the primary was with the um, with the Madras, and uh, they um, randomised um, the sixty plus people into two groups, mm-hmm. um, so roughly thirty in each, and one group um, was given um, quite intensive um, dietary advice by certified dietitians, um, and the other group was. Um, uh, given quite intensive, just general chit-chat. Mm-hmm. They call it sort of just supportive, um, you know, talking sessions. Without intensive general chit-chat? Yes, yes. So um, <laughs> at the same um, frequency, I know it's, it's quite interesting to read, um, at, the, at roughly the same frequency as the group that received specific dietary, dietary advice. advice. So, you could, so the idea of that is you can rule out the consultation as having an effect, a confounding effect. That's correct, yep. yeah. Gotcha. Can I ask one question about this? Did, they, did the people who had the intensive chit-chat, was that particularly focused? Was it a sort of CBT-based chit-chat or did it have any kind of as in psychological behavioral? value? Yeah. So um, they adopted something called a befriending, befriending. end quote, yeah protocol um so they had the same visit schedule and length of um consultations um sessions as a dietary support intervention group um and you know they just had people come in they would talk about their interests in sport perhaps tennis you know i mean the this trial was registered you know in 2012 so they probably wouldn't have been you know watching this year's australian open but certainly the 2013 australian open would have been in one of those sessions um and, and talking about um uh, you know, I mean, there's something here about, you know, your interest in music or, you know, they get together and play card games. Mm-hmm. 
So really just a befriending session. Um, and, you know, after a 12-week period, um, they reassessed um, the participants and mm-hmm. their rating scales and, you know, showed a st- statistically significant improvement um, um, that clearly favours the dietary intervention group. Um, so In mood? In, in mood. Right. And <clears throat> specifically in terms of, um, you know, some of the um, easier-to-palate um, Statistical measures. Um, the the study quotes um, a number needed to treat of about four. So what that means in um, statistical terms is when um, you know you have four people of this disorder, um, you, you need um, out of um, four people with this disorder, one person would get better. If you if you treated four people with this disorder with uh, this particular intervention, intervention, i.e. dietary advice, one person would get better. Now compare that NN to that number needed to treat for other uh, treatments like for antidepressants. Do we know what the NNT it's is? It's absolutely exceptional. Yeah. You know, for most antidepressants, particularly the first-line antidepressants, mm. we're talking in the ranges of about 6 to 20. Right. So in terms of an intervention, this is very uh, not uh, powerful. Is the wrong word. It works. It works for people. That's correct. <laughs> okay, gotcha. Simply, right. So, where does that leave us? And I suppose you know, um, I, I suppose you know, being scientists, we are always still, you know, healthily skeptical. You know, mm. um, I, I think you know um, this could potentially be uh, um, very influential. Not this study itself, but this understanding and this movement. Mm-hmm. So, there's a healthy skeptic over here. Uh, I'd be interested in a couple of details. In regard to this study, firstly, how depressed are these people? Who's the group that you're treating? Are they got mild to moderate symptoms? In which case, by all means, they should first try dietary advice. I suppose what worries me is because, you know, I see people who do struggle for a long time before they come and see a psychiatrist when they've got really severe symptoms of depression that's really impacting their ability to work, to function in their relationships, or even to get out of bed. Now, I wouldn't be saying to those people, you know, you should eat more chickpeas. So that's what worries me a little bit about these sorts of studies. I think that they're interesting and they teach us a lot about what we're gradually learning more about, which is the gut microbiome and and how that could influence every aspect of how we function. But I really think uh, we need to be careful about the groups to whom this particular research applies. It may well apply to all of us, and we all know these basic truths. We should eat better. We should exercise more. But um, I'm just not sure that the... I suppose the people that I would see would necessarily benefit. So did they, yeah, did they say what uh, um, what level of depression was evident in the selection group? I mean, the reported um, uh, depression rating scale scores were taken as an average. Right. Um, but, you know, suffice to say, I think that's a very good point. Um, suffice to say, you know, um, all the participants were managed in an outpatient right. setting. Um, so they weren't... Um, unwell or severe enough, um, you know, to be needing and to be in hospital, they might be placing themselves at significant risks, sure. or they actually need um, very assertive um, strategies. Were, were they on antidepressants as well, or, or tablets, or receiving treatment? So, so they were receiving treatment for the depression, and this was something in addition to. That's correct. Right. Yeah. So they were getting treatment for the dep- a medical treatment for the depression, or psychological treatment, and this was added. And when this was added, it showed a uh, significant effect in in, in absolute terms. How uh, significant was the effect? Did it take people from um, sort of substantially depressed to back to you know fully functioning and of normal mood, or, or do we know that? 
Um, looking through the you know actual papers Putting in a little bit on, yeah. more detail, um, <laughs> you know there there have been um, reported um, improvements in um, people's rating scores mm. and. Um, by the way, interestingly, um, over the 12-week period mm. between the two cohorts, um, people's BMI, their body mass indexes, indices, did not change very much. Oh, really? So it's not a weight loss um, protocol or, you know, that wasn't sort of um, one of the observations. But then you could also say that people with, we know with a significant number of people with depression, they lose weight or their appetite decreases and therefore they lose weight. And one of the things that happens is if their mood improves, they start to gain weight. So... There, I think there's so many confounding factors in that. But the fact that these people were in treatment and a Mediterranean diet actually improved mood uh, in that group, that's that, does, that not re, does that not sort of reassure you a bit? Yeah, no, no, I Perry? like that better. That, that sounds much better. Yeah. <laughs> because I, I would never say to someone, only go home and eat Instead chocolate of, and yeah. ice cream. Um, and take your antidepressant. <laughs> I would never say that. But I, and, I, and maybe it is important for people to pay attention to all these other aspects of their life as they recover from depression. Yeah, I mean, I, it's, it's, it's tricky because, you know, mood and, you know, and mental state, there are so many factors contributing to it. I mean, we, you know, we know this is a truism. But I mean, yeah, you never take one study as the gospel truth. You always look at it as interesting and then look for more studies to, to replicate it and so forth. But well, in and of itself, I think this is a pretty interesting study. Or a follow-up story, um, study to see how they fared 12 months down the track. Did they stay on the diet? Did, was the mood, good, better mood sustained? Yes. The, and, or was it just the, what we call the study effect? People get better for being in a study and monitored and accessed to health professionals. Yeah, I have another query too. Can you just describe a little bit more detail what exactly a Mediterranean diet yes, is? Yes, very good point. And before that, I'll quickly answer uh, Mal's previous question about just how much people got better. So um, they looking at the, um, the Madras uh, rating scale, it's a... Um, rating scale that uh, has a maximum score of about of 60 um, and at um, baseline um, scores um, the the participants were rank, uh, rated about 25 to 26 um, so moderately but not severely severely depressed um, and uh, at the 12 week follow up people who had the befriending social support group um, they improved by about 5 points um, and in the uh, the treatment the dietary treatment group um they improved by about 10 points so even by means by by way of rating scale the improvements were not huge but um i think what's um quite impressive is the actual effect size and you know the um the the clarity of um how much um Mm. statistical improvement there have been so i mean one of the great paradoxes with the mediterranean diet and you're about to tell us what it is Mm -hmm. is that there's so much oil in it and oil is supposed to be bad and yet these people on Mediterranean diets tend to have better cardiovascular health, overall better general health, um, lighter weight. And now what we're understanding is that perhaps I'll also have, uh, I guess, better mood because of it. Mm. What's in it? Well, I mean, you know, one of the key features of um, mm. the Mediterranean diet, particularly when it comes to oils, is um, having um, polyunsaturated um, or um, monounsaturated fats, such as olive oil, mm. not sort of saturated fats. Like such as, you know, animal fats and mm-hmm. butter, butter and, yeah. you know, um, some crude, cruder vegetable oils. So but olive the, oil, yeah. But the other um, Mediterranean um, diet, uh, you know, s- schema consists of, you know, um, whole grains, legumes, fruit, um, nuts, um, eggs, chicken, 
um, seafood and fish. So kind of um, rustic type stuff, not yeah. overly processed. That's right. Not so staying sugar. away from sweets, refined um, foods, even refined cereals, mm-hmm. um, um, fried foods, fried foods, um, fast foods, processed meats, um, sugary drinks, soft drinks. What about the wine? Because I've been justifying my wine intake based on the Mediterranean diet for years. So it, yeah, it's healthy. In, interestingly, um, you know, this was featured in the study as well. So the dietary advice given were that um, people could drink red or white wine, but mm-hmm. up to two standard drinks a night. So two. Yes. Okay, so two glasses of red or white wine. Okay. And no more than I'm getting a look from the green room of a week. Oh. <laughs> okay, no more than three times a week. Yes. Okay. And if so, this is a question I got asked in my interview when I was going for a job as a psychiatrist at uh, a leading hospital in Melbourne. They said, um, you know, here's a. They, they gave me a study and they said, um, what do you think of this study? And I said, look, it's a great, really interesting study. It wasn't this one? It was another one. Um, but I would never make clinical changes until I saw more. Uh, more of this being discussed, more studies uh, asking the same question, filling in the blanks. But it is a great start, don't you think? I think so. I think so. And I, th- I, I feel clinically at least, you know, I think um, treating um, depression or treatment of uh, mental illnesses in general is a very synergistic and very yeah. tailored approach. Yeah. Um, Whereas, you know, currently, clinically, you know, when someone consults me, doctor, I'm feeling depressed, you know, we might talk about biological and psychological um, treatment modalities. But I think, you know, um, increasingly, we can probably say with some confidence that improving your diet and eating healthy and eating better is probably going to have a synergistic improvement, Mm -hmm. a benefit as well. And, you know, I mean, as clinicians, we sometimes offer advice that aren't very evidence-based mm-hmm. at all, but we still offer it anyway. If anything, there is actually some emerging okay. evidence yeah. about diet and food when it comes to managing depression. Now. Fantastic stuff. Thank you so much, Junior. The Mediterranean diet, good for your heart, and it looks like it's good for your mental state as well. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia. Penny, so, as I understand it from what you are telling me or have told me, that pharmacists can now, what, unsheathe the syringe and plunge it into my or my child's arm? Yes, well, I'm torn. You're torn. So, this is what's happened and it's been around for probably about 12 months, especially in Queensland, where uh, there's a professor of... Uh, pharmacists, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, Lisa Missenden, Mm -hmm. and she um, did a big study looking at pharmacists giving vaccines and aiding the community in um, in being immunised because if you're immunised, you not only protect yourself, but you can have this thing called a herd effect. So the community gets some protection. And somewhere along the line, and I'm not sure where it started, but maybe a pharmacist raised the question, I'm dispensing so many flu shots, why why couldn't I give a couple of them? Mm-hmm. And so they've taken it on board and it's been funded by the Victorian government and it is pretty much across quite a few of the states now where people can drop into the pharmacy, especially around flu season, mm-hmm. and the pharmacists do say that they've got the edge because they get the, the flu vaccines a bit earlier than the GPs because they're the first line of mm-hmm. call. And 
you could just, as you're doing your 4,000 things in the shopping centre, you mm-hmm. could just pop in and get your jab mm-hmm. and for your flu shot. That sounds sensible. It sounds sensible. Also, they're able to give the pertussis vaccine, which is for whooping cough. Oh, so hang on. So they can only give flu or pertussis, not every... Not every. Correct. Oh, Correct. I yes. thought it was like every immunisation. No, 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 not oh, yet, right, not right, right, yet. Right, but, right. you know, I think the pharmacists are carving a niche here yeah. and um, it might be possible that they'll be giving other ones. So particularly flu shots are given to usually pretty healthy people, um, the ones that might be dropping into the, fu- because to the they chemist. Can, because they can make it to the chemist. Because they can make yep. it to the chemist yep. and, and they have statistics to show that most people are only five minutes away from their local chemist. Um, and pertussis because you're also giving that to healthy women that are pregnant in their last trimester to protect the oh. unborn fetus from um, hooping cough, hooping cough right. pertussis. And um, it's uh, so they're for people that need the flu shots. Oh. So we're talking about annual influenza vaccines to protect that person from getting the flu and then getting a secondary bacterial infection and then everybody gets sick and flu goes around everywhere and... Oh. So, um, but there's some GPs and some clinic nurses that are a little bit concerned about this um, because, and you would uh, um, understand this one, that when people need their flu shot, so say a diabetic or an asthmatic or somebody without a spleen, if they're going to the local chemist and getting their flu shot, they're missing an opportunity to be reviewed by their GP. So... The GPs think maybe if you're only going to the GP once a year, that to get your flu shot and then for somebody to have a quick review of your medication, check your blood pressure, that sort of thing is being missed. It's a missed opportunity. And the excuse about, well, the justification about the pharmacists being able to do this is because everybody's so busy, we do, you know, we won't, it, it, it's more important to get people immunised than having this little sort of uh, check-up. And I was thinking about my car. You know, we all... No, but we. I love my car, and we all go and have a safety check on our car, and we pay big bucks to have it serviced. We've got to believe in the brakes and everything. Mm. Why, why would you miss this opportunity to not be reviewed by your GP? Because we're all so busy. We're working, we, you know, and GP um, costs are increasing if you go to a private clinic, Um so there, I just thought I'd put it out there, see what people were thinking. Can I, can I jump in? Yeah. Because uh, I love my GP and I love my pharmacist. Oh, you're torn too. No, no, no. But I'm just thinking, if I take the pharmacist's point of view, I'd be saying, well, hang on. I mean, really, what's the evidence that, you know, um, the person who gets a flu shot from me would really only see me and therefore not see their GP for something else? So, you know, they send me for one flu shot, you know, and if they're healthy, maybe they don't need to see their GP because, yep. you know, 35 years old, 36, whatever, yep. and they're fine. So I am saving the community money. I'm giving easy access for mm-hmm. a, a very important uh, vaccine. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm making it easy. And, um, you know, I'm not, not uh, I'm, I'm saving dollars, which would otherwise go to, to my GP up the road. That would be a, a pharmacist argument, I imagine. Mm-hmm. And also the, another argument. Do they give out lollipops? Uh, yeah, uh, not what, sure, the and they are doing it properly. Trust me, oh, they yeah. have separate rooms. Um, they do take a little medical history. They do keep the patients for fifteen minutes yeah. after they've had any of the vaccines. Yeah. Um, so you know, it's all it's all it's all very safe, so, yeah, so, and they're not far from GPs if there are yeah, complications. 
Yeah. So, um, so obviously they would have to go to some training to learn how to Correct. inject. Correct. Right. So who gives them that training? Is there a whole new uh, industry in training yeah, pharmacists to inject? Yeah. Yeah, there's, it's all. I think it's probably originally done by some GPs that have written some manuals and right. and then they're trained and okay. Um, okay. Uh, yeah. And also, if you think about in the workplace, a lot of little um, dialer nurse that goes around with a little trolley <laughs> and a, a cart of vaccines, yeah. they do that at work. Right. And and they've and the and those staff are immunised in a corporate building or whatever mm. in the hospital, um, and they don't get reviewed by their GP. So when you get your vaccine from your pharmacist Mm -hmm. um do they charge extra for giving it so that's a good question so if you are you have a medical reason to need a flu shot so Mm. diabetic or you don't have a spleen Mm. it's it's free right and depending i think on your financial state whether you're charged a dispensing fee administration fee or not but the vaccine itself is free Mm. um it is the flu shot last year was twenty dollars so you'd be out of pocket twenty dollars and if you can afford that and also a service fee so it might be another ten dollars to administer it oh so if I don't fall into an unwell category, Correct. I might get charged chronic 15, illness. Chronic illness. I might yeah. get charged fifteen bucks to yeah. have a jab. Yeah. Compared to a GP who might charge more than that. Correct. Right. They, but then there's also yeah. in my reading, yeah. um, a lot of the <laughs> clinic nurses will do the GP shots. So you might not necessarily see the GP. It's very vexed, and I'm very torn. But um, that. But the clinic nurse might just do the blood pressure and say, oh, hang on, or when was the last time you had blood sugar done or, you know, bloody blood, whereas the pharmacist won't do those sorts of little off-the-wall opportunistic questions. So, So maybe there's a role, if that is the case... For a pharmacist to do that, to say, well, hang on, I'm giving you a flu shot and, you know, the clinic nurse would probably you know, check your blood pressure, you know, ask you a bit of the diabetic history, chronic illness history, and then refer you off to the GP. Mm-hmm. Maybe there's a role for pharmacists to do that? I think so, but it's also, and I think I'm um, looking at the time, I, I, it's just, it's feeding into this forever too busy business. <laughs> We are. We're busy. I know, but your health, your health, seriously. You might go in there and, and by the way, I've got this funny thing on my breast. Could you just have a look? You know, pharmacists and, you know, I I, I just... I just think people underestimate having a health check. I I agree with you, but I think, you know, you've got to... You've got to come serve where there's an opportunity. And if mm. there's an opportunity at a chemist, then you go there. And I agree, you know, people need to take more. We all need to take better care of ourselves yeah. and so forth. But if there's an opportunity, so grab what, it. what do you got? What, In the 30 seconds we got left. Yeah, the 30 seconds, everyone going to their chemist? Or this, you... this concept of task shifting um, is very commonly done, particularly mm. in North America. You know, so they have, um, you know, clinics that are wholly run by nursing pra- nurse mm. practitioners, etc., without doctors being there, and it's much more efficient and um, cheap and cheaper, etc., etc. Et mm. So, you know, I think it's a really good idea, but I think in this particular case and in the Australian context, what's going to be important is making sure that the administering pharmacist tells the GP that this has been given. Oh, so there's no yes, doubling communica- up oh, and yes, there's no lack of drop-off. Yeah, um, there is. We should get a it pharmacist in here to talk about this. Oh, let's get a pharmacist in. Yeah, we haven't had a pharmacist in. Let's get him in. Okay. Thank you, Penny. Oh, I love this topic. It's really, really good. Thank you so much, Dr. Perry Nadel. Thank you, Dr. Junior. Great first show for 2017. Woo-hoo. We've got the rest of radiotherapy coming up over the next couple of weeks. But coming right at you in about seven seconds are the team from Einstein. I love these guys. Stay listening for them and some more Triple R throughout the rest of the day. Good on you.
This has been a podcast from Free Triple R, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.